Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. A warm welcome to First Move, another supersized show for you this Wednesday. We'll explore the future of Fox after its jumbo Dominion settlement fee, Netflix subscription growth, not really investor's cup of tea, plus an optimist's view of the AI phenomenon, ChatGPT. Coming up, LinkedIn co-founder and venture capitalist Reid Hoffman tells us why he believes artificial intelligence will benefit humanity. He's also against a very high profile now appeal to pause development. His new must-read book, Impromptu, Amplifying Our Humanity Through AI, was even co-written with the latest iteration of the language model, ChatGPT4. We wondered, did ChatGPT ask for a royalty fee? Hmm, I'm looking forward to that. Now, on global markets in the interim, a negative read. U.S. stocks set to pull back in early trade. Europe, as you can see, a touch softer too. New inflation numbers in the United Kingdom show inflation still above 10%. That's the highest rate across Western Europe. Food prices, in fact, spiked by almost 20%. Wowzers. And in earnings news, shares of Morgan Stanley heading lower too after reporting a weak Q1 investment banking segment result. But key regional bank Western Alliance surging pre-market. Take a look at that. Up 22% saying deposits are recovering. A sign that the worst of the banking turmoil may indeed be over. We'll continue to watch those smaller banks. A busy show. You can certainly bank on that. Let's get right to our top story. The Fox Dominion aftermath. $787.5 million. That's how much Fox News agreed to pay Dominion voting systems to prevent Dominion's lawsuit from going to trial. It's the largest known defamation settlement involving a media company in U.S. history. Marshall Cohen joins us now. Marshall, we can make this story about many things, American democracy, you name it. But actually, at its core, it's a business story. And what happened here was Dominion won big relative to its business. And Fox decided to settle with a monster sum to avoid that trial. That's right, Julia. And good morning here from Wilmington, Delaware. Dominion voting systems, very few people actually heard of them unless you were an election official or a local county administrator before the 2020 election. But they're world famous now for the historic settlement that they clinched right here in Wilmington, getting $787 million from Fox News, which of course is the cable giant. Uh, Dominion, their valuation a few years ago was only around 80 million. So compare the numbers. They're worth about 80 million. They're going to be taking in almost 800 million. Of course, some of that will go away with attorney's fees and other things like that. But a monster settlement. What they didn't get in this settlement, however, was a public apology from Fox News, a public admission from Fox News that they lied. Fox, however, did issue a very uh, what sounded like a very lawyered and careful statement after the settlement saying simply that they acknowledge 
the court's previous rulings that some of the things they said on air were false. So they kind of gave a little bit on that, surely not as much as Dominion was hoping. But now this case is over, everyone's going to move on. But Julia, Dominion has additional lawsuits against other people that promoted these lies about the 2020 election. And Fox, for its part, is also facing another serious lawsuit from another voting technology company. So we're done here in Delaware, but the big fight over 2020 accountability is not over. Yeah, you're so right, because that Smartmatic suit is, what, $2.7 billion. So this could end up being the thin end of the wedge. Some lawyers around the country rubbing their hands together today. Marshall, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Okay, let's move on. Weaker than hoped for subscriber growth and a delayed crackdown on password sharing. Two takeaways from first quarter earnings at Netflix, sending the stock down by as much as 8% in after hours trade. Though, as you can see, that stock did rebound. That's where we're headed pre-market. Netflix rolled out its paid sharing plans to limit password-free riding in nations like Canada and Spain earlier this year. But the big prize is the United States. Tim Larlin is Senior Media Tech Analyst at Macquarie and joins us now. Tim, great to have you with us. Key this quarter was, I think, what we heard about the cheaper ad tier, but also cracking down on that password sharing. And those two things are interlinked. What did you make of what we heard from Netflix? Yes, absolutely. And uh, thanks for having me, by the way. I do believe the password sharing plan is is really the most important um, bit of news uh, to come out of the earnings. Now, we knew this was going to come. We thought it would happen during the Q1. Uh, Netflix, of course, did not roll that out. And they announced on the call last night that this will be rolling out during Q2, not just in the U.S., but in many, many countries. In fact, most countries globally, uh, you know, in, in a matter of days, weeks, uh, certainly within the next couple of months. Um, the reason this is so important is Netflix has previously said that there are around 100 million users of Netflix around the world and 30 million in the U.S. and Canada of that 100 million who are basically using the service for free, you know, sharing a password from the parents or from friends or roommates. Um, and so now Netflix will be cracking down on that practice and they will force those users to either ask the account owner in the household to, to add them as a, as a subscriber or give them the option to add on to the, the advertising tier that Netflix launched about six months ago. In either case, you've got up to 100 million users that will be now uh, forced to pay for Netflix for the first time. Yeah, and, and your point is that people are probably going to be embarrassed to go to the person that they're borrowing from and say, hey, can you just pay a bit more and I'll continue to borrow your password? The likelihood is they look at their options and they end up signing for themselves. I mean, you've done scenarios that 30 million people decide, OK, I'm going to sign on. 20 million say, fine, I'm going to sign on. And 10 million, which I know is your, your sort of most likely probability. Just walk us through those options and what it means in monetary sure. terms, because the money actually, and the cash flow production in this quarter was important too, and I want to get to that as well. Sure. Well, yes. So as, as a quick preamble to that, keep in mind, Netflix stopped giving subscriber uh, number guidance uh, as of uh, last quarter. So the supposed subscriber miss this quarter was just a miss versus what analysts like myself were guessing, um, but we didn't have any guidance to go on for that. What matters much more is revenue, and of course, revenue translating into earnings. So what Netflix has been doing is been rolling out an advertising tier, which is basically you know, charging less for the subscription price. But a very interesting piece of news last night from the earnings call was that Netflix is now making more money 
on uh, ad tier subscribers than they do not on the basic plan, but on the standard plan. So think about it this way. For $6.99, you're paying a subscription fee to Netflix. Netflix is making something north of $15.50 per subscriber, given the amount of money they're making on the advertising on top of that subscription. So the way we view it, this is uh, the first step toward uh, trying to make more money out of, out of users by kind of a win-win, giving a user a lower price, making more money for Netflix. The uh, paid sharing plan, the work that we've done is tried to assess how much more money Netflix can make from this. We think the paid sharing plan is basically a way to sort of kick users into doing one or the other. The ad tier, we think, could be more lucrative for Netflix. But in, in the scenarios that we came up with, it's just to say, look, in the U.S. and Canada, 30 million subscribers are using Netflix for free. What if all of them were to take on either the paid sharing or the advertising tier? We estimate that's an extra $3.5 billion worth of Netflix on a full year run rate basis. Now, that's probably overly optimistic. And then I convert every single user. If they only convert a third of those users that are using Netflix for free, we estimate that's about an extra $1 billion of revenue to Netflix, uh, again, in a full full year run rate uh, scenario. That's, that's around 8% incremental revenue to Netflix. And that's only in the U.S., uh, and Canada, if that all rolls out smoothly. So apply yeah. that globally, you know, you're talking two or $3 billion incremental revenue revenue to Netflix, I think at a minimum. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at some of these numbers and it's looking more and more like a traditional media company was sort of complaining about the anemic 3.7% growth, but free crash of what, $2.1 billion and the buying back stock in the quarter. Um, interesting, Tim, we'll reconvene on this because I'm out of time, but great to have you on and um, great to get your insights. Thank you. Tim Nolan, the senior media tech analyst at McCrary. Okay, let's move on to Saddam. Both sides in a battle to control the country are blaming each other for the failure of a ceasefire which was broken soon after it was meant to begin on Tuesday. Earlier today, smoke was seen billowing across the capital Khartoum. Millions of civilians are trapped in their homes at risk of running out of water and food. Gunmen have reportedly raided the homes of UN staff and other international groups. The European Union's ambassador, who was assaulted in Khartoum, is staying in the city. Larry Madawo is following developments for us. Larry, we're painting a, a pretty bleak picture at this stage. And I think what we saw with the ceasefire is actually was expected by one of the guests on our show was that no one really knows who's in control of, of their troops and of their forces. What's the latest today? We're supposed to be in the final three hours of this 24-hour humanitarian truce, but we can't say the ceasefire failed because it didn't really take off. In the first few minutes after 6 p.m. local, when the guns should have fallen silent and the bombing and the bombardment, there were still attacks and gunfights. So this was predicted because, like you mentioned, there are people who think these two generals don't have control over their forces. This powerful paramilitary force, the rapid support forces that's fighting the Sudanese army, they're estimated to number about 100,000 all across the nation. And CNN has learned that the leader of that paramilitary force, General Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, or Hemeti, has been commanding his forces very close to the general command headquarters. That's where the army is based, and he's witnessed some of these most fierce fighting in recent days. I interviewed him on Sunday. He did not want to appear on camera, on video, because he didn't want to reveal any clues that might pinpoint his exact location. But this has degenerated into the nightmare scenario for so many people who are terrified in their homes, some of them receiving stray projectiles and gunfire, hunkering down 
running out of food and water. The hospitals are inundated by the wounded. Half of the hospitals in Khartoum are out of action. According to the aid agency, Doctors Without Borders, they've been shelled, they've been bombarded, and sometimes the staff cannot make it there because it's not safe. And yet, so far, 270 people are dead, but that's most likely an undercount. When the guns fall silent and a full account is done, that number could rise. Here's one voice from Sudan who spoke to CNN, terrified. I can't put into words how mentally devastating this is. Our only ask as innocent civilians that are caught in this crossfire is for the RSF and the SAF to stop. Stop the war. Stop the violence. Find the grace to dialogue. That British Sudanese author, Rosen Ahmed, told us that yesterday, when there should have been a ceasefire, a missile hit her neighbor's house and it burned to the ground. So many people are in that situation. They can't get out, they can't move, and they're caught in the crossfire in this power struggle, Julia, between these two generals. Yeah, heartbreaking for all those involved in our thoughts with Rosalind and everyone there. Larry, great to have you with us. Thank you. Welcome back to an at least artificially intelligent, if not AI-driven first move. But as I joked yesterday, it may be coming soon. Just this week, this picture won the Creative Open category at the Sony World Photography Awards. The winning artist refused his award because the image was made utilising artificial intelligence. And a song using AI-generated vocals replicating the voices of Drake and The Weeknd was just pulled from several streaming platforms, raising questions, among others, about copyright laws. So at a time of heightened confusion and calls from some industry leaders to pause AI development, the question really is what's best for our society at large and how do we learn and utilize this technology better? Well, our next guest knows a thing or two about AI. He's even co-written a book with ChatGPT4 in Impromptu, Amplifying Our Humanity Through AI. Reid Hoffman asked the question, among many others, what are the ways we can use GPT-4 to make progress in the world? Author, venture capitalist, podcaster, co-founder of LinkedIn, I could keep naming, Reid Hoffman joins us now. Reid, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, First and foremost, I can't call it a book, and neither do you, because you said if you called it a book, it would be outdated by the time it was published. So it's a travel log. Um, first and foremost, what do you want people to read this book and walk away thinking? Well, I want people to understand, because, you know, the general dialogue is so much concern, which it's yeah. important to be attentive to those concerns, to see what the opportunities are to see how they can be amplified, that as opposed to artificial intelligence, think of it as amplification intelligence. And I thought that one of the ways to do that was to show how I would be amplified writing a book. Like it wasn't just, you know, talking it to other people, it was, you know, like reading my own book, but it was actually in fact doing it. And, you know, think about having like a smartphone doctor, tutor, you know, assistant in your pocket that helps you, whether it's life things, work things, et cetera. And to think about that, wonderful opportunity for how we become more human because we become more human through our technology. You know, my observation from reading the book, and it blew my mind, is that it's very clear that there is a huge difference between chat GPT three and a half that we're and consuming at the moment and using and getting confused by and seeing hallucinations and what you were doing with chat GPT four. I mean, there was 
and it was able to recognise when you were asking for a joke. You asked for the fifth sentence in the Gettysburg Address and it was doing that. And the difference is huge, which is both exciting from a technology perspective, but I think also it would address a lot of the concerns that people people have today if it's utilised properly. Yeah, because the thing to think about it is as, as a co-pilot, think about it right. as something, I mean, yes, you need to learn it, but learn it and you can learn it the way you learn a computer, you learn a word processor, you learn how to drive a car. It amplifies, like driving a car is an amplifier of human ability and you can now go much farther. You can now go to places you couldn't otherwise reach. That's the kind of thing now cognitively, now mentally, now writing, now creating images, even if, you know, I actually think you can create an image for an art competition with it. You know, I think all of that is actually now amplifying, giving us superpowers as human beings. Yeah, as a tool, to your point. I mean, we can use yes. the artist example, but you also use and speak to two really phenomenal teachers that instantly recognize the power of this. And rather than just automatically say, look, using ChatGPT is cheating, they said, how can we utilize this? How can we learn more about this and help it ultimately to make us smarter and boost human progress, elevate our teaching? And learning. Yeah, just like when the printing press was created, people worried that our cognition would devolve because we wouldn't have memory. It's, no, no, our cognition adapts to what's good. And what we want to do, for example, with students is teach them even better essays. How do you go, well, I use ChatGPT to help me write an essay, but I write a much better essay as a way of doing it. It, it rises, it kind of causes the tide to rise and helps you really adjust and dig into the things that are the thinking parts of it, the consideration parts of it, the, the things that, you know, we, we seek to be when we become educated. There's one point on this, which I think is really important, and you're talking about the pros and cons of, of New York banning the use of ChatGPT for, for school children. And you say to ChatGPT4, um, so net-net, based on the data that you're analysing, do you think it provides a, a sort of a greater good than perhaps the drawbacks or the negatives. And ChatGPT4 says that's an accurate reflection of its perspective. Um, it sounds very human and sort of frightening a little bit. And, and then you challenge it and say, what do you mean by that? And it says, look, I'm just gathering data points and that's my analysis. Um, you describe it as a very sophisticated prediction machine. And it's that fine line, I think, that we need to understand between what appears to be human intelligence or an intelligent response versus smart, predictive analysis. Well, and this is just the kinds of things we've had to learn over time. Like, for example, back in the 80s, people said, oh, chess playing was the highest form of human intelligence. Oh, look, these computers can play chess much better than human beings. Well, okay, we go, great, that's, that's, that's an interesting thing. By the way, today, more people are watching human beings compete with each other playing chess than have in history because we're still interested in that. We don't watch computers playing chess with each other. And I think that that you know, kind of thing of how do we um, essentially uh, uh, adapt using new tools? Like it used to be really important to be able to ride a horse. Now most people don't ride horses or don't ride wagons. They, 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 they either uh, you know, drive cars or ride in cars or ride in trains. You know, that kind of amplification of human being now, as, as you know, Steve Jobs described the computer as, as the bicycle for the mind. Now we're, 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 we're learning, you know, through, through ChatGPT, the motorcycle of the mind. 
<laughs> but some of it is kind of mind bending, I think, let's be clear, yes. particularly at a time of great misinformation and, and disinformation. There is, I think there's a danger here of the hallucinations. And actually, you break it down cleverly, I think, into sort of four pieces. And I'm just going to pull out two. One that's the utter nonsense part that we can all recognise. And many of people have done this with ChatGPT. And you, you can able and are able to identify that. And then the, the sort of plausible but incorrect where the grey area comes. Are we in a position where, as confusing and as concerning perhaps as the hallucinations are for chat GPT three and a half, that problem is perhaps fixed when we get to a far more sophisticated level in chat GPT four? Just like we've been improving search engines, the hallucination problem will improve. It may never ever 100% fix, but it will, it will get to, you know, human beings make mistakes too, and search engines make mistakes. And so it'll get to a place where it's like, look, it's actually a very uh, useful and reliable source. And sometimes you'll still have to cross check just when you're talking to another human being and another human being says, well, I think X is true. And you're like, well, wait a minute, let's go, let, let's, let's go get one or two or three more other sources just to cross check and make sure that's the case. You'll never get to zero on that because it's a great assistant but you have to not be deluded by the fact that it's so linguistically capable, right? It's, it's one of the proxies that we frequently use for, for truth is, can you speak really compellingly? Well, you know, the, the, these AI chatbots can now speak really compellingly. And so you just have to kind of upgrade your, 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 your interaction with the tool to kind of go, hmm, I think I should cross check that one. Yeah, human judgment will always be required. Um, in the book, I think you describe it as learn to recognize good enough knowledge and utilize it, which, yes. which jumped out at me as well. Um, the, the place I'm heading here by asking you all of these questions, though, is uh, to, the, to that point, you're not in favor of a pause in AI development, but would it surely not be smarter in some way? And can you at least understand the logic to wait until we're at a point where the technology itself is that much more advanced that some of these issues fall away? And if not, why not? Well, it's partially like how you get it developed. You, you develop it by engagement, like the way that we've yeah. made it so much of a better human amplification tool is by having it engage with human beings, learn from them, and learn, in essentially, how to be a better tool, a better assistant. And and technology, we adapt to it, and we adopt we adapt it as we're building it. The six month pause basically doesn't wouldn't give us anything. Even if you could wave the wand, what's well, like okay? We wait six months, and then we get back to developing it. I mean, it's yes, you can think about it a little bit, but you can't you can't think about like all the things that go like when you build a car, you didn't think. Oh, seat belts. Oh, airbags. Oh, window washers. Oh, <laughs> you did it by developing it, learning it, and paying attention and asking the right questions. That's the thing you need to do. So the six-month pause basically doesn't really buy you anything. And so, and then the other question about this, of course, is we're in the process of reinventing, you know, kind of the industries. Like, how can we amplify doctors? How can we amplify teachers? How can we amplify lawyers? You know, how can we amplify small business owners? And um, and pausing means that other people who are not pausing will then go and build those things. So the people who are paying attention, who are asking the ethical questions, who are who are saying, you know, how do I make sure that this is uh, broad rangingly available to you know to all communities and to the broader world and not just to you know kind of rich elites or anything else? 
those people who are asking those ethical questions, mm -hmm. those are the people who say, okay, I'll pause, and then the other people will go and build it. And so, you know, no, 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 we need to keep building it. But the good news is, you know, the OpenAI folks with, you know, Stan Altman and Mira Marathi and Greg Brockman and crew, the, the Microsoft folks, Satya Nadella and his holding, they're asking these questions. And so it's, 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 it's no, no, let's, let's be smart about how we're doing it, but let's, let's keep going. Yeah, I mean, they are asking the questions, but they're also in an effective AI arms race at the same time. Um, and I guess the one counter that I would make to the point that you made, and I agree with you about the technologies like an airbag, for example. I mean, airbag, if it blows up too boldly, could, could break your neck or break your nose um, in a sort of best case scenario. And there's regulators involved. And the technology on this and the utilization of this is going so fast that I just wonder what the role of, of regulators, of governments, of private industry is at this moment, Reed, what's your, um, what's your advice for those that, and for me too, I can see the human benefits, I can see the educational benefits, the, the job benefits of the power of this technology. I just, harnessing it for me is the big question. Maybe we should ask ChatGPT4. Okay, Reed, what's your answer <laughs> to that and what, what would ChatGPT4 answer? <laughs> well, I have asked uh, GPT-4, but it's, you know, it, it can it can make a compelling argument in both directions. It's part of the reason why it's a great <laughs> educational tool. Um, and and I think that the 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 the, the central thing in terms of, of, of looking at this is to say, well, um, regulation um, can be very good on on big harms. But the way that we adopt to technology, just like I was using the car thing, is by getting that out there and seeing it versus imagining all the things in the future. Like if I had said hey, I'm going to create a, uh, a two-ton hunk of metal that you might die in, that you might run over someone else in. You know, It's like, oh, we should pause before we do it, and we should really talk about it before we make it. You, you just, you'll just never get it on the road. So the, the thing that you, that you need to do is say, well, let's, let's get on the road. Let's drive, drive carefully. Let's be paying a lot of attention, and let's be iterating to it. And it doesn't mean that there isn't a role for regulation, but the role for regulation is to say, hey, let's be studying it, and then let's really get crisp about which outcomes we want to uh, avoid, which are important, and which outcomes we want to get. And that's the right place for the dialogue. So, for example, when you say, well, we're looking at this AI stuff, well, which things would we, we, we want to say, well, let's really make sure we avoid this. Let's make sure that we avoid having tools that could increase cyber hacking or phishing. Uh, let's let's try to steer on misinformation the right way. Now that we have a whole political issue about because what counts as misinformation, we have an intense set of disagreements in our society about, and that's one of the problems we need to solve. But like let's let's define those things, and then in defining those things, in that dialogue, that could lead to regulation. And by the way, people always say regulation is what not to do. There's like down regulation. There's also kind of up regulation as well, like what things to do. And I think that's that's the important thing that we get to do. Like when we started creating hospitals, we didn't say let's regulate them first. It's let's 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 go into the practice, see what happens, and then we go ah well let's see let's regulate use of anesthetic this way, as opposed to let's try to predict how anesthetic's going to work, which we're not particularly good at doing, without <laughs> getting the experience of doing it. Yeah, I. I think at the crux of this is that the technology is not the problem, it's how we use it and how we utilize it. And we can be way, way smarter. Um, I already am by reading your book about how we utilize this technology um, than we are today. And we'll get there. Reed, I'd love to continue chatting more, but I'm out of time. Come back, please. And we'll talk more. Absolutely.
Thank you. Co-founder of LinkedIn there and author of the book Impromptu, Amplifying Our Humanity Through AI. I think you already know it's worth reading. Welcome back to First Move and back to one of our top stories today. The truth matters. Lies have consequences. Today's settlement of $787,500,000 represents vindication and accountability. We must share a commitment Dominion Voting Systems and its legal team proclaiming victory after a last-minute settlement with Fox News and its defamation lawsuit. The big payout is about half of the $1.6 billion that Dominion was asking for and roughly eight times its revenue in 2021. Fox not required to issue an apology, but in a statement, the company acknowledged that certain claims that it broadcast about Dominion appear to be false. Joining us now, Ken Turkle. He's the attorney who represented some high-profile figures, including Sarah Palin and Hulk Hogan in defamation cases. Ken, fantastic to have you on the show. I think plenty of people would have liked this to go to trial for the purposes of democracy. But in the end, this was a libel trial. It was about business. And Dominion's lawyers surely would have been negligent not to take this money. It wasn't particularly surprising to me uh, at those metrics. Uh, I think people lose sight of the fact that you can lose trials. I don't care what it seems like when people follow it through the news until you're in there intimately tied with the facts and the law and dealing with a jury that is, if anything, certain a jury is uncertain. And and I don't care how much of a master you are. And certainly the lawyers in that case, tremendous lawyers, some of the greatest in the nation, but you still have uncertainty. So if you're going to achieve your client's goal, get closure, get essentially what you want out of the case. It is reckless. They would have been just, there's no chance you don't take that at those numbers with what I've kind of heard as a soft apology, but not a formal one. Right. So I wasn't surprised. Would you have liked to have seen that? What's that? Apology? Yeah. Could they have fought for the non-monetary aspects of speech cases are interesting. When you have a broadcast case, where you don't have uh, what we have, let's say, in Palin, where it's written and they publish, mm-hmm. you know, or traction of the written statement. Everything's uh, static, right? It's frozen there. Um, I don't know how much weight an apology going on the air because they're, they're really just talking to their own people who probably didn't care anyway to begin with, their own audience. But, you know, you want to get the non-monetary things. You know, I thought up until yesterday, at the very least, that to Dominion, this was a business survival case. They couldn't go into electoral cycle after electoral cycle worrying about their product being attacked like that falsely. So um, Uh, that's a great point that they could have made a trial, that this is a live or death result for them because they simply can't go into another um, election with the credibility questions surrounding them. Um, Let's talk about Fox's side now, because this is not the only case that Fox is facing. They're now bracing for what is a far bigger suit, Smartmatics. Um, I think they're going for $2.7 billion. Like, we don't have to work out or understand how they came to that $2.7 billion. But those lawyers surely rubbing their hands together today because the probability of another settlement surely just went up. You would think so. Um, The Smartmatic case is lagging behind. Uh, there was an interlocutory, an intermediate level appeal because they're in New York State Court where you can appeal motions immediately. They won the motion. They, the 
the plaintiff won the motion to dismiss. I'm pretty sure Fox took that up. So they're really just getting into discovery. But keep in mind, Julia, this. When we plead a complaint, what we're required to plead in a lawsuit is a jurisdictional amount. Damages over $100,000 or whatever the jurisdictional amount is in a given jurisdiction. When you hear they're going after 2.7, 1.6, that is the plaintiff's best idea of damages at a stage in the case where they really haven't developed their damages through evidence yet, right? They haven't taken the discovery on it. The experts, uh, the forensic accounts haven't been deposed. So when we say they're going for a number, my personal practice is I never do that. I don't need the shock value. We plead jurisdictional amount. We litigate the case. A lot of lawyers like to put the number out there. I don't really know what that number means right now, right? Yeah. Does it mean they have an accountant who's computed lost profits or lost revenue with that amount? I don't know. Maybe. You know, it's well, you'd, early. You'd hope they have some justification or, or to your point, maybe yeah, the intention is never to get to trial and just settle for a whopping great number. Actually, on that point. Yeah, I don't think they guess. I don't think you guess. But at the early stages of a case when you're analyzing business damages, you are going to err on the side of inclusivity, right? Having the most you can. And then if you have to ratchet it back based on the evidence or so forth, you do. So, no, I don't think it's a guess. I would never say that. OK, but, you know, it's early. You don't I mean, know. If, I, if I were a lawyer, I'd err on the side of big, quite frankly. Can I have about yeah, one, one, one minute left while well, I'm a journalist? Um, um, I don't know where I was going to go with that. Ken, very quickly. We do have <laughs> to prove it eventually, right? So, you know. Yeah, I have a good go at that too. Um, very quickly, because I have about 30 seconds left. Are you surprised that we know the, the, the monetary amount? Because in settlement cases, quite often, you, you never actually hear the deal. Is that important? You know, yeah, I think it is. And I will tell you this. I do quite a lot of this work and a lot of it goes to trial, you know, and some of it doesn't go to trial. But usually in most business type cases, business litigation, non-injury litigation, we're going to do confidential settlements, right? Mm. Uh, everybody wants to just keep it shut. We settle this between us. Speech and reputation cases, I find it very different, Julia. Yeah. More often than not, we won't have settlements that are confidential because we want the message out. Yeah. The deterrent message, right? Loud so. and clear. I'm being told to shut up. Ken, that's a, a frequent thing. Okay. <laughs> Great to chat to you. Me we'll too. Again we'll soon, no doubt. Then, okay? Have a good day. Done. <laughs> okay. Moving on to today's Connecting Africa and the business of keeping sailing vessels ship shape. It's a super tanker sized industry, I can tell you that. Just ask West African based firm NAMDOC. Eleni Jokos has the details. In short, we, we, we fix ships, we, we repair ships, right? Uh, that is the short answer. As a shipyard, we provide uh, various services to the vessel owners that call our port. So we've got three floating docks. The floating docks get submerged in the water and then we raise the vessels out of the water. The three floating docks can together lift as much as 30,000 tons, making it one of the largest and most advanced shipyards in Africa. We had vessels from all over the world call our ports for service. The Netherlands, Greece, Brazil, France, to name a few. We work on mechanical, propulsion, electrical, carpentry, and piping and valves. These are the services that we sell. The NAMDOC team has extensive experience maintaining and repairing a wide range of vessels, from cargo ships and tankers to offshore support vessels and drilling rigs. Oil and gas, which is the new buzzword, it's a very exciting time for us. We have people that are well-trained to not just only work onshore, 
but also to be able to work offshore. That requires special skills. There's a lot of opportunities uh, where customers are demanding our services. The recent discoveries of extensive oil and gas reserves off the Namibian coasts suggest there's the likelihood of significant growth in the coming years. We are at a doorstep of really contributing to the GDP of our country, especially from a shipyard perspective. And Chief Executive Officer Albertus Carrico is confident that the coming years will see an increase in maritime traffic. The port of Walfus Bay is, is strategically located to really benefit from the maritime traffic that we will see in the next three to five years, probably ten years. We will not be a bus stop, quote unquote. We will be a port where people load and offload cargo. And while they are waiting, we as a shipyard repair facility will really maximize on those opportunities to make sure that we can service all the vessels that are calling the port of Walfus Bay. It is necessary for a port to have a shipyard facility. Our vessels do not need to call ports in South Africa or anywhere else in the world because we provide those skills. For Nandok, for Valfus Bay and for the nation of Namibia, the future seems bright and full of opportunities there for the taking. What a beautiful sunset. That's it for the show. Marketplace Europe is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.